0: from the laboratories of Your Name Here had come the key to the secret that had baffled man through the ages. No longer a dream, but a reality was Your Product Here. A brighter future unfolded thanks to Your Name Here. Employment boom. Not only in the vast modern facilities of your name here, but in factories everywhere, geared to supply this vital new industry that is reshaping our economy and transforming the lives of millions.
1: This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. Make a donation directly to www.diffusionradio.com. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. On this edition, waves of transition and rideable multicopters. But first up, here's the news as read by listener David Merriman
2: Plants eat their veggies. Bladderworts warts are insect-eating plants, which mostly live submerged in lakes and ponds around the world. They trap tiny animals using microscopic suction traps. The traps are small chambers, or bladders, which sustain a negative pressure inside. When their airtight door opens quickly, it forcefully sucks in prey. The traps have been known to also suck in lots of pollen and algae, But since 1900, that was always thought to have been accidental, of no use to the plant. Now, a team at the University of Vienna has shown that the plants are healthier when they eat their vegetables, as part of a balanced diet with their meat. In the wild, bladderworts are found on every continent except Antarctica. Collectors around the world often grow bladderworts for their small but beautiful Orchid-like flowers. The most notable feature of the bladderwort are the many little traps under the water or under soggy ground, collecting food for the plant. The bladder traps set themselves by pumping fluid out of the sack using special glands. This makes the water pressure inside the bladder lower than the surrounding water. The bladder has a trap door that's firmly closed by a ridge at the bladder entrance, sealed by mucus. The trap sucks in any small object that knocks against the trigger hairs on its door within a thirtieth of a second. It immediately closes the door again. The Austrian team controlled what the bladderwort could and couldn't eat by what was allowed in the water with the plant. They found that bladderworts that sucked in lots of algae and pollen gained micronutrients and trace elements and grew larger. More animal prey gave the plants more nitrogen and improved formation of the hibernation buds which it needed to survive the winter months. A well-balanced diet of meat and vegetables left the bladderworts in the best health. When the team screened over 2,000 traps, they found that only 10% had animals inside, but 50% had algae, while a third had pollen grains. It used to be thought that the traps of the bladderwort, like those of the venus flytrap, are only triggered by the movement of animal prey. Significantly, the team found that if no animals trigger the traps for a long time, then they spontaneously open and suck in algae and pollen grains. The paper was titled, Capture of Algae Promotes Growth and Propagation in Aquatic Utricularia." and was published in the Annals of Botany. The bladderwort will no longer be known as a carnivorous plant. It's an omnivore.
1: That was David Merriman from New Zealand reading this week's news. And didn't he do a wonderful job? Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Would you like to read one of my scripts? Send an email to science at diffusionradio.com and we'll talk. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet On www.diffusionradio.com Flying cars. Not yet. The lure of the everyday personal flying machine has been around from the earliest speculation about manned flight. Instead, we have giant commercial people movers and millionaires' toys that require years of training to fly. Helicopters are very complex, heavy and expensive. However, with the rise in electric quadcopter technology and sophisticated control systems, there are some promising new manned multi-copter projects under development. E-Volo, a German prototype electric multi-copter with 18 small rotors. It's an octodecacopter. Like a helicopter, people sit in a cabin beneath the rotors. Although petrol powered multicopters first flew in the 1940s, the Volocopter is the first electric multicopter in the world to have achieved manned flight. The large number of low cost motors means that even if four motors fail, you can keep control of the craft. Powered by a 100 kilogram battery, the two passenger Volocopter can travel at least 70 km per hour, but only for 20 minutes. Longer flights will need better batteries. The Volocopter has a €2 million grant from the German government. The quadcopter hoverbike by the British company Malloy Aeronautics is designed to fly manned or unmanned. It was invented by New Zealander Chris Malloy in his Sydney garage while he was living in Australia. The hoverbike's Kickstarter crowdfunding project raised over £64,000. It started as a two-rotor system, but it was redesigned with four rotors when the quadcopter control technology matured. The hoverbike is designed with two pairs of offset and overlapping rotor blades. The hoverbike will come with autopilot as well as remote piloting abilities. The designers think it may be used for aerial cattle mustering, search and rescue, aerial survey, movies, and power line inspections. While the Hoverbike is still in development you can buy the Drone 3, a remotely operated miniature version which is the third of the size of the final full-sized human carrying version. Drone 3 comes complete with Buster, its own test pilot mannequin made on a 3D printer. The aircraft will be able to fly up to 2km high and over 180km per hour. The Hoverbike will be classed as an ultralight aircraft. So under current rules, you wouldn't need a pilot's license to fly one. The Aero X is a two-rotor aircraft carrying two people that's designed to fly at no more than three meters above the ground at speeds of up to 72 kilometers per hour. It runs on petrol rather than electricity, so Aero X can fly for more than an hour. The rotors are spun by a rotary engine, so that even if the engine fails, the blades can keep spinning instead of being locked in place by pistons. This means it can fail more gracefully if the engine dies, so you can glide to the ground instead of falling like a stone. AeroX will give the Malloy hoverbike a run for its money. Its publicity material also calls it a hoverbike. However, unlike the Malloy hoverbike, the AeroX is designed to be a ground effect off road vehicle like a light hovercraft, not an ultralight aircraft. The company suggests that anywhere you wouldn't drive a hovercraft, you wouldn't want to fly the Aero-X. The company also says the Aero-X is different to any other tandem hovercraft because it can be ridden like a motorbike, by leaning forward or to the side. Aero-X is taking orders for aircraft to be delivered in 2017. The Airboard Electric Flying Scooter is a rideable quadcopter that can fold up to fit in the boot of a car. It features a safety mode that limits its height to one and a half meters. Like the hover bike and the Aero X, the Airboard is steered by moving your weight, sort of like a Segway in the sky. It also allows remote control from a phone or a tablet app. The Airboard is classed as an ultralight aircraft and is promised to be available later in 2015. The American AT Black Knight Transformer is a military electric Flying truck. It can be piloted by a robot while carrying people. It's designed for autonomous casualty evacuation and cargo resupply missions. Getting injured people out of war zones without endangering a human pilot. In the civilian world, it could be used for firefighting or package delivery. It's big. It's an octocopter, flying with eight rotors and all-terrain wheels driving on the ground. Californian company Advanced Tactics Incorporated builds vehicles for the military and for civilians with funding from the U.S. Congress. The AT Black Knight Transformer is controlled and stabilised with propeller speed. They have a smaller version, the Panther Transformer, to carry two people without the need for pilot training on special operations missions. The AT Transformer uses engines with a direct drive connection to the prop rotors. The propulsion system and airframe structure are made of low-cost, field-replaceable components. They also have a high-speed manned quadcopter called the Barracuda. Advanced tactics are taking advanced orders for their flying robots, but not yet for the manned aircraft. The manufacturers don't say what powers the Black Knight, but to lift so much over such distances, I think it's a safe guess that they need a flying truck tank full of petrol. Of course, all of this is not yet available and will be outrageously expensive. For now, your best, if not your safest bet, is to hang from some model helicopters flown by the Hilly Graphics team. After four months of preparations and test flights in 2014, they used two battery-powered model helicopters weighing just 6kg each to successfully lift a 56kg woman 10m into the air. Of course, despite the detailed information on how they did it, and the physics involved, some people think it's just a special effect. You can see videos for all of these flying devices on the show link page on www.diffusionradio.com. Get a helmet, a parachute, and some flight insurance first. Happy flying!
4: I understand the circus there is
0: excellent. Now <laughs> oh, you see what you've done with your ridiculous claims. I will go on. You must listen. You who? You heard what I can do today. Now you shall hear what I can do tomorrow. All that has been done with animals can be done with man, with you. There is one of you who can't use what I can give you. Take your minds from your miserable fake bodies and put them into bodies that are strong and young. All right, when you lie on your deathbed, I shall laugh to think of all that you've refused.
1: Previously, John August looked at some of the history behind solitons and John Scott Russell's wave of transition. Russell's observations were dismissed by important people in science at the time, although later he was vindicated. Now John August looks at some of the physics behind oscillations, solitons and waves of transition.
5: So what is the linear theory of water? Perhaps you know about sine waves on a string, where the string moves up and down in a transverse wave, and you have the shape of a sine wave. For water waves, however, the wave particles travel in circles, and for any sort of reasonable size waves, rather than a sine wave, what you have is a slightly different shape, a cycloid. It's one consequence of non-linearity, but doesn't really turn anything on its head. Appendix A of the linear theory. It was first described by Gerstner in 1802. Looking at waves at the beach, it does seem that they have a sharper crest and rounded troughs, something that was consistent with the cycloid waves. Now, if you'd always thought that waves in water are the result of particles moving up and down, rather than in circles, it does make you wonder, what else are they hiding? Solitons emerge from a different combination of forces, and the first step along the way is to understand nonlinearity. Much of physics focuses on the linear, and it's like uncovering a secret realm, sort of like discovering the Gnostic scriptures after being brought up on conventional Christian theology. Linear relationships are proportionate, if you pull a spring out twice as far, you double the force it pulls back with. But in the non-linear realm, as you push things harder, you get less bang for your buck. If we pull out the spring twice as far, we don't get twice the pull, but rather a little less. This may not seem like much, but it adds up to have a crucial effect. Let's consider a pendulum. Umberto Eco wrote of the pendulum in his book, *Foucault's Pendulum. That was when I saw the pendulum. The sphere hanging from a long wire set into the ceiling of the choir swayed back and forth with isochronal majesty. I knew, but anyone could have sensed it in the magic of that serene breathing, that the period was governed by the square root of the length of the wire and by pi, that number which, however irrational to sublunar minds, through a higher rationality binds the circumference and diameter of all possible circles. The time it took the sphere to swing from end to end was determined by an arcane conspiracy between the most timeless of measures. The singularity of the point of suspension, the duality of the plane's dimensions, the triadic beginning of pi, the secret quadratic nature of the root, and the unnumbered perfection of the circle itself. Now, Echo says that the period is governed by the square root of the length, and he's mostly correct. But, just like they didn't tell you that water particles in a wave move in circles, the pendulum's period is only proportional to the square root of the length for small displacements. For larger displacements, you have a force triangle, and not all of the force of gravity pushes the pendulum back to the centre, some of it just pulls along the wire. So the gravitational pull is less effective, we get less bang per buck, and we are in the nonlinear realm. Because the pull is not as strong, the period is longer. But while there's almost always less bang per buck, this doesn't always slow things down. There's another source of oscillations, which you'd find in electronic circuits, the so-called resonance circuit. You have two components, a capacitor and an inductor. The capacitor stores energy in an electric field. The inductor stores energy in a magnetic field. By exchanging charge, you exchange energy and get an oscillation, much like with a pendulum. With a pendulum, you have an exchange of energy between the movement of the bob of the pendulum and its height. Energy as so-called kinetic energy and potential energy. A lot of radio equipment runs on these resonant circuits. Now, with a capacitor, as you fill it up with more and more charge, you end up getting less bang per buck. You're in the non-linear realm. You're getting more voltage for the charge you put in, and in a sense, it fills up more rapidly. So, in this case, the oscillation gets faster. There's a shorter period. Now, when it comes to water, we normally think of the speed of small waves being independent of their size. But again, that's an approximation. Larger waves are nonlinear, and, like the capacitor, we find that bigger waves move more rapidly. But we need to consider one more factor, dispersion. This means that the larger the length of the waves, their wavelengths, the faster they move through the water. Now, given these two factors, what we want is a balance between the two. If we have a moving lump of water curve so that its wavelength seems large at the base, it moves fast because of it. While at the top of the wave its wavelength is less, so dispersion contributes less to its speed. However, the height means that the nonlinear speed increase makes up for the deficit, and you can have a constant speed along the whole wave. Our wave describes a balance between the two effects, and this balance is captured in the KDV equation. Rather than being a periodic oscillation, the profile of a single moving lump of water can build up gradually, with a large wavelength at the bottom and a small wavelength at the top. This means we can have a solitary moving lump of water, in a way which was not possible for waves determined by linear forces. In a canal, they are fascinating, but their relatives, tsunamis, can cause great destruction. So... Now, not only can Russell observe his solitons, but we can describe them mathematically in a way in which science is comfortable with. And all is at peace with the world.
1: That was John August, explaining the physics behind oscillations, solitons and waves of transition.
0: Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate.
1: Blake Siegler brings us a vessel of hope.
2: Next we have Blake Siegler. Blake is in the first year of his PhD. His principal supervisor is Martin Ebert and their project involves collaboration with the University of Wisconsin. Blake loves physics and regularly demonstrates as part of outreach programs, encouraging high school students to enter the fires, but really just looking for an excuse to play with liquid nitrogen. Outside of physics, Blake has a passion for music, having played piano and saxophone for over a decade, and he is currently the vice president of the Combined Districts Concert Band. The title of Blake's thesis is Modeling Tumor Vasculature and Its Response to Anti-Angiogenic and Radiation Therapies. The title of his three-minute thesis is A Vessel of Hope.
6: Cancer. It's responsible for one in every seven human deaths. We spend billions of dollars researching it year in and year out, trying to understand and treat it. But our success in these endeavours continues to be greatly limited. So why is this? Well, cancer is really just an umbrella term for an incredibly large family of diseases. Tumours vary not only based on their locations within our bodies, but also from patient to patient. If we're going to successfully treat these tumours, we have to account for this biological variability. We'll be focusing on the tumour vasculature, This is the delivery network which supplies the tumour with oxygen, nutrients and drugs. Now, it's governed by what are known as angiogenic factors. Angio meaning vessel, and genic like genesis being to form or create. In our healthy normal tissues, we have a good balance between the pro and the anti-angiogenic factors. And this balance leads to a well-structured vasculature. But in tumours, this balance is thrown out. We have an excess of the pro-angiogenic factors leading to a chaotic formation of vasculature. The vessels formed are abnormal. They're tortuous, leaky, and in general just very inefficient despite the great quantity present. We could try and get rid of all this vasculature, but not only is that likely to affect our healthy tissue as well, but we're going to need this delivery system in place for our later treatment strategies. Chemotherapy, for example, relies on transfer of drugs to the tumour through this vasculature, and radiation therapy relies on an oxygen supply being at the tumour site. So rather what we want to do is try and normalise this vasculature, returning it to a well-structured state by balancing out those angiogenic factors. And we can do this by providing a patient with what are known as anti-angiogenic drugs. But how do we know how much drugs to give them, and how will this affect our treatment strategies down the line? Well, that's where our model comes in. Our model is the very first in the world to be able to take an individual patient data, such as PET scans and CT scans, and use these to generate a simulation of their tumour vasculature based on that individual patient. Incorporating biology, computer science, mathematics and physics, we can then evolve this tumour and see what it might look like two weeks from now, based on various possibilities of treatment with angiogenic drugs. And this is just the beginning. From there, in the future, our model will be able to explore every possible scenario of chemotherapy or radiation therapy to be able to determine the most optimal situation and the best outcome for the patient. It's estimated that a third of you here today will develop cancer at some point in your lives. But models like ours give hope. Hope that if this were to happen to you, you will receive the most optimal combination of treatment strategies possible based on your specific circumstances. Models like ours really are ensuring that in the future, every patient will have the best chance of beating their tumour. Thank you.
1: And that was Blake Siegler from the University of Western Australia with his three-minute thesis, A Vessel of Hope. You can find out more about the three-minute thesis competition at www.3minutethesis.org.
3: John. Yes, Murray. John, what's happening to us?
4: I think we both know, Mary.
3: It's just that we seem to be drifting apart.
4: I'm sorry, Mary. I've tried.
3: Oh, I don't blame you, John. It's just that...
4: It's not your fault either, of course.
3: It's just that that we don't have...
4: Exactly. There's this awful gap in our lives. Just because we don't have... Oh, but why talk about it?
3: It's just that... Oh, I keep hoping someone can find a way to...
4: Don't be a fool, Mary. You know that's impossible.
3: Oh, i know. It's just that...
4: Gad, it's ironic. With all our technology and industrial know-how, we still don't have the one thing that could give us a better way of life. They say it can't be done. That it's
0: just an impossible dream from the laboratories of your name here had come the key to the secret that had baffled man through the ages thanks to your name here John you mean
4: that's right Murray I got the promotion sorry tomorrow I'm no longer just a shipping clerk I'm chairman of the board
3: and it's all because of
4: your product here
1: And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production was Charles Willock. Contributing to the show this week was John August. This week's listener newsreader was David Merriman. I produced Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including two Triple H in Hornsby Keringai, two NVR in Nambucca Valley, two X in Canberra, and three MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 Internet Radio Station and also on Astronomy.fm. You can now hear diffusion on Stitcher, Radio on Demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and review diffusion subscribe to our podcast on the diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for videos and links from this week's show i'm ian wolf join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on diffusion science radio and to take us out Here's Dorothy Collins with Vibrations.
3: Wrap a rubber band around an empty shoebox. Listen, listen, you hear nothing. Strike the rubber band with your finger quickly. Listen, listen, you hear something. Now the rubber band's in motion, and that motion is the sound of that vibration carried by the air vibration 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 is what causes sound vibration 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 causes sound now tony and his guitar will show you how to control the pitch of a sound by changing the vibration he raises the pitch by tightening the string And he lowers the pitch by loosening the string. He raises the pitch by shortening the string with his fingers. He lowers the pitch by lengthening the string with his fingers. He raises the pitch by using a light string. Oh, pretty. And he lowers the pitch by using a heavy string. Boys and girls, you've just heard a scientific demonstration which proves that the pitch of a sound is changed by changing the vibration. Vibration, vibration